Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Former New York City ballet soloist Gloria Govern knew she wanted to be a dancer when she was a young girl. In her teens, she was an apprentice at the dance company. Later, she became a soloist and danced under the direction of the legendary contemporary choreographer George Balanchine. Now Govern is the artistic director of Eastern Connecticut Ballet. It's a school located along the shoreline in East Lyme. She joined us recently to talk about her career, a career where she broke the mold of what a traditional ballerina should look like. Gloria Govern, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. And I lived there until I was 24 years old. And then I was already a member of New York City Ballet. I was a, an apprentice at 16. Uh, but at 24, I left home and uh, rented an apartment in New York, and I lived the rest of my career with New York City Ballet living in New York. I should ask you, you were an apprentice at 16, so when were you first introduced to ballet? Oh, I was three. Uh, my mother took me to, I think it was the Mosque Theater in Newark, and the Ballet Russe was doing Capelia. And that was, that was it for me. I actually remember at three years old going there. And my mother took me to a ballet school in New York that was run by this Russian lady. And they took one look at me and they said, oh, she's too young, but why don't you just leave her here? You go off shopping and come back and we'll let you know. And when my mother came back, she she told me this story. I was <laughs> sitting on the director's lap and they said we'd be very happy to have her. And that was the beginning. You said at three they thought you were too young. So when is a good time for a young dancer to begin? Well, things have changed since then, and now they have all kinds of programs for young children. At our school, we start them at three. But this is an introduction to, it's not really ballet, it's it's learning how to take directions, appreciate music, um, interpret music. It's, it's not regular ballet. I think you, uh, a child would be ready to start at seven with more serious training because it's, it's not a lot of fun when you first start. Mm. It's, it's a slow process. So it takes uh, patience. And not all children have that kind of patience at that age. But any, any, anywhere between seven and 10 years old is a good, good time to do real, real ballet. You said it's not fun in the beginning. Is it because you're learning all of the technique and the proper way to... Absolutely. And you do a lot of work at the ballet bar. So, you know, you you have to learn the positions. You need to learn how to stand with the correct posture. And you need to learn what turnout is because the whole basic of... Uh, the technique of ballet is with the legs turning outward. Uh, so, and the coordination of everything, and that all happens at the ballet bar. And 
you get to come in the center and you learn maybe arm movements and little little jumps across the floor. That would be the first year. So to have have a child stay at the bar for that long requires uh, focus. <laughs> Your mother brought you. Uh, she got you started. Was mm-hmm. she was she a dancer? No, my in those days that wasn't the proper thing to do when my mother was a young woman. My mother was very, very talented. She played the piano. She made all my clothes. She was a painter. Uh, She was extremely creative, and she always wanted to dance. And she, she told me how when she was a young child, she had a girlfriend who studied ballet. And she traded books for this girl's shoes so she could pretend she was a dancer. So when she saw how much I loved it, um, it was everything for her, for me to take classes and, and sort of follow my dream. She was also very ill when, when I was a child. She was in and out of the hospital. And um, I remember one year, my father didn't send me to ballet school for an entire year. And my mother came out of the hospital and she was just furious. So I went back. <laughs> and she was, she was the more supportive parent. My father was always afraid that I might not be able to support myself um, doing what I dreamed of doing. And he wanted me to have security. And um, I understand that. Mm -hmm. I understand that. That's a sentiment a lot of parents have for their children. Uh, But you had a passion. So how did you get involved with the, the School of American Ballet? Well, I went, I started out with the Russian teacher in Newark, but then she was retiring and there was a school around the corner and it was called the American Academy, I believe. And the director was Fred Danielli, who had worked with George Balanchine and the New York City Ballet. And so that's where my mother sent me. I was uh, approaching high school age and my mother was interested in sending me to the School of American Ballet and so we went to New York and I took a couple of classes there Mm -hmm. and um, I wanted to go immediately. I I could see um, these people were a lot better than I was and that's where I wanted to be. Um, but my mother wanted me to finish out the year. And then there's, well, there's a story which is true. I was, uh, somebody spotted me taking class there and told the director of my school, and he was furious, and he (laughs) ushered me out the door. And so he ushered me right into the arms of the School of American Ballet. I was delighted. My mother was upset, but I was really delighted. And the very next day, I started there. You mentioned George Balanchine. Mm -hmm. People who uh, don't follow the world of dance, tell us why he was so instrumental. Well, George Balanchine was the greatest choreographer of the 20th century. And he literally built the bridge from... 
ballet of the 18th, 19th century. He, he built that bridge to modern ballet where it is today. Um, his ballets today are as relevant as they were when he choreographed them, some of them in the 1930s. Uh, they're very sought after from company to company. They're danced all over the world now. Every dancer loves dancing a Balanchine ballet because they're, years ago when they had the old you know, ballets, for the corps de ballet, there wasn't much dancing. They would stand around and pose and walk around and pose a little bit more. Balanchine gave freedom to movement and dance and energy. He loved, um, he loved America and he loved American spirit. And so when he taught us and when he choreographed, it was all with that American energy that the old Russian style didn't have. It was all very contained. And so for a dancer, it's, it's great. It's wonderful, especially if you like to move. But he is still considered the choreo a choreographer of the 20th century. Do you remember the first time you met him? Um, he was doing Nutcracker on television, and Balanchine was Drosselmeyer, and I was an angel. And in this production, the angels were in like step-ups like a Christmas tree, each different levels. And I'll never forget, we were rehearsing and all of a sudden I heard, Gloria, move up one step. And it was Balanchine. And I realized at that point that he knew my name. Uh, that, that is the first really recollection. I mean, when you went to the School of American Ballet, you always saw him, you saw his principal dancers. They were always sort of mixed in with everybody and they used to rehearse at the school so you could you could peek in at the rehearsals but um as far as you know <laughs> really thinking oh my god he knows who i am and at 14 he actually he pulled me aside the company was going to um australia and japan for a tour and he asked me how old I was, and I was 14. And he said, oh, dear, you're too young. He said, we, if we took you, it was a long tour. We'd have to take a tutor. Your mother would have to come around with you. And so um, he, he said, you're going to have to wait. Well, after that, I, I didn't even want to go to school anymore. I just wanted to dance. And I did everything that I could to graduate. And I did. I graduated at 16. And that's when I became an apprentice. That's Gloria Govern, Artistic Director of Eastern Connecticut Ballet. She's a former soloist for the New York City Ballet who danced under the direction of contemporary choreographer George Balanchine. Coming up, we'll hear more about her career, including how her height broke new ground in the world of classical ballet. 
This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking to Gloria Govern, a former soloist with the New York City Ballet. She's considered, quote, the vanguard of the tallest, terrific look of modern ballet. We spoke to Govern recently. She's now artistic director of Eastern Connecticut Ballet. She told us her height caught the eye of contemporary choreographer George Balanchine, while also attracting envy from other dancers. I understand when you look at your height and mm-hmm. you look at what was considered uh, a traditional ballerina would be mm-hmm. five four. You were five ten at the time. Five ten, yeah, yep. Never before. I think Balanchine actually liked the idea. You know, sometimes when he would teach class, he'd always say, "Oh, something original, never been done before." You know, he used to tease. And I graduated high school. At 16, my father, you know, you either work or you go to college. Um, I had gone to an audition for ballet theater. At the time, it wasn't called American Ballet Theater. It was called Ballet Theater. And I made it all the way through the audition, but I never in a million years thought that they would choose me for their company because I was so tall. And I cornered Mr. B, as which we all called him fondly, and in the hallway at the School of American Ballet. And I told him that I had graduated and that I had gone to this audition and made it, And but I didn't want to dance there. I wanted to dance for him. And what should I do? And he was very discouraging. He told me that they had never had a dance, a woman dancer in the company as tall as I was, which means he would, in order to put me in the corps de ballet, he would have to hire at least two other girls that were close to my height so that I wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb. And then there would be an issue with costumes because they didn't have costumes for somebody my size. And so he said, That would be very expensive, and at the time, the company didn't have a lot of money. And so then he suggested that maybe I should get a job in Shrafts, which was right underneath the ballet school, and they would give me all my classes for free uh, until they could see their way to hiring me. And I was very, very depressed. I went home. I was so despondent. And that night, I got a phone call from the ballet mistress saying, Mr. B wants you in the company, and you are a member. You know, it's almost like you never never really 
know the moment that you were formally entered into the company. It just sort of happened, and there you were. And he took my two best girlfriends, who were a little bit shorter than me, but um, close, close in height, because I would think... I would say the, the, the tallest girl in the company at that time was probably five foot six. So why do you think he had that change of, of mind if he was telling you one thing but then deciding I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna take this risk? Well, I think he wanted me. You know, he for him his dancers were inspiration. And he once told me that he never saw anybody my size move the way I moved. And he was intrigued. And, um, you know, I did do a few core parts. I was in the core of Swan Lake. I think I did Waltz of the Flowers in Nutcracker. He told me I could, I always wanted to do snow. And I never could do it because they told me I was too tall. Uh, I was in the company four weeks when I was called to learn the lead in Fourth Movement Western Symphony. And all of a sudden, I was on a fast track, and I was not doing core work. Or I was doing core work and then the lead in a ballet and then like a demi-solo and then another lead in the ballet. We used to do four ballets a night. And he, he just... He was interested in me, and I had a different kind of career. It wasn't the kind of career where you did the ballerina pas de deux kind of. There weren't very many tall boys in the company, so it was difficult. And so what he did was he created solos for me, which which was great. <laughs> and how did others respond to you that they saw that they he gave you a chance? And because you didn't fit the traditional mold, but you were still uh, successful, he was creating roles for you. How did people respond? They were jealous. They I had I went through moments on stage. I remember. Um, in those days when you got into New York City Ballet, there was kind of a, a sort of caste system. And if you were the lowly apprentice, you went out for coffee for everybody. And the girls who were in the core, um, they all dressed in the same dressing room. And uh, at one point, all of a sudden, Balanchine moved me out of that dressing room and put me in a, a room with three other principal dancers. I was much younger than them, and I had no experience, but I think um, he recognized that the the ladies in the corps de ballet, some of them were not very happy with what was going on with me. And I remember I would be doing, there's a, a part in Swan Lake where uh, all the swans have, they do a lot of running on the stage and we had to cross. And every time I crossed with this one particular girl, she would stick her foot out and I'd have to hop over it because I was afraid I, she was going to trip me. Um, but that all settled down. I, you know, I'm, I'm a very easygoing person and I was, I never pushed for anything. I never asked for anything. I always figured if Mr. Balanchine wanted me to do something, it would be his choice. And, um, so I, you know, I was not aggressive person. People, people started to respect me and I had, I had a great career. I really did. And what about the audience? 
the audiences that came to see you, did mm-hmm. they notice your height? Did it matter to them? I, I used to get a lot of fan mail. And early on in my career, because because of especially when Balanchine choreographed Coffee for me in Nutcracker, I used to get uh, fan mail from men, lonely men from the lonely city of you know. It, it used to get scary actually trying to leave the theater sometimes because I had people that were a little too aggressive. Later on in my career, I used to get letters from young ballet students. When we used to go on tour and we were in small groups, I used to have girls come up to me who were tall, who were so grateful because I broke the mold. You know, it's like the glass ceiling of ballet and there would be a chance for them. So I, I was kind of a little bit of a leader in that respect. That must make you feel good, though, when you look back. Oh, yeah, because if you actually when you look forward, when you see dancers of today, um, there are a lot of tall girls and some of them taller than than I am. I have a girl in one of my classes who has to be way over six feet tall. I mean, I need to reach up to her. And I thought, how beautiful. And Balanchine always used to say he loved tall dancers on stage because you could really see them. You know, because the audience is far away and the lines are longer. And he liked tall people. Mm-hmm. I think he liked interesting people. You know, it was he didn't want everybody to be the same. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening back to an interview with former New York City Ballet soloist Gloria Governor. She's now artistic director at Eastern Connecticut Ballet. Let's talk um, about other ways the industry has changed. Uh, you mentioned that there are now many tall ballerinas. You're teaching um, mm-hmm. tall ballerinas. Well, I think one of the things that I think is really obvious is they're taking dancers who are older. Um, when I got into the company, I was 16, and when I l- retired, I was 34. Now, a lot of dancers get jobs in companies coming out of college. We never, we didn't go to college. We had to dedicate our lives to the career that was in front of us and worry about the future when it came, which was difficult because if you were not prepared, um, leaving the nest, so to speak, because it really was a very protective environment. And if you didn't prepare yourself and you were encouraged not to prepare yourself, you were encouraged to dedicate yourself to the art and hopefully everything would work out. And I see that as a very big difference today. Dancers are, dancers go to college while they're performing. They, they have, a lot of the colleges have programs for them that give them life experience credits uh, so that when they are ready to retire, they have a degree. And I think 
I think it's good. And and also, well, I think what what they have more than anything else now, too, is they have good physical therapy. They have better floors. I mean, we danced on cement and we did. There was no such thing as physical therapy. You either got on stage or you didn't get on stage and you danced with injuries. Now, the the pluses are enormous. But also, when I was in New York City Ballet, I don't think there were more than 45 dancers at the most. Balanchine knew every single person personally. He knew he knew your mother and father. He knew when it was your birthday. Um, it was it was truly like a family. Whereas now, you know, you've got eighty, ninety dancers in a in a company. Um, it's hard for the director to stay with everybody. And I just recently asked somebody how how do you take company class in the morning with so many people. It, it, the studio's only so big. So it's it's a little, I would think, impersonal. And I think that a lot of the dancers, if they're not, if they don't become a principal dancer, they move on fairly quickly onto other careers. They go to college. Who are the dancers that you're watching today? Oh, for me, Sarah Mearns is... That's Tell why us about we, her. Well... You know, I know Sarah from when I was the uh, the associate director at San Francisco Ballet, and I scholarshiped her to come in the summer. And uh, as I did many of the dancers of New York City Ballet, she has a passion, and she's a very sophisticated young person. She goes to the symphony. She educates herself. Um, she's hungry for doing it now, and she has a passion for whatever she does. So she has, um, she's not only a technician, she is a true artist. And I so enjoy watching whatever she, whenever you see her, you know, it's, it's never the same. It's always exciting. Uh, but, you know, I think the dancers, there are a lot of, people my generation who think that um, it's not as good because, uh, I don't know, I think it's like a, a marriage <laughs> where people think back and they think they only remember the good stuff. They don't remember the bad stuff. And I look at the dancers today and I am amazed at how beautiful they are and how how the technique has grown. I, 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 I'm not one who, who wants to go backwards. I think going forwards is the way, and I think the dancers of today are just incredible. Can I ask you about uh, Misty Copeland? She's someone that a lot of mm-hmm. people know for, in the mainstream who may not follow, again, the dance world. What do you think of her and her technique? Oh, I think she's very accomplished, extremely accomplished. And for herself, um, I, I think she's, she's created a niche for herself and other black dancers. Uh, she's kind of made... 
how do I put this? It's, it's colorblind. It, it doesn't matter whether, but you know, this is not something new. There have been black dancers in New York City Ballet during my time. Well, obviously there was Arthur Mitchell. Um, when uh, New York City Ballet was on tour, I remember we went to um, Raleigh and the company went was being booked into the hotel and uh, they would not book Arthur Mitchell. And you're talking the 1960s. And Balanchine pulled the entire company out of the hotel and went to a place that would. Balanchine loved, um, there, there were rumors about him and Josephine Baker having an affair. You know, for Mr. B, I don't think it, any of it had anything to do with color. It had to do with was he interested in this person, and did this person inspire them, mm -hmm. him? Well, when you look at um, a dancer like Misty Copeland, uh, maybe she is inspiring girls, no matter where she, they come from, to then, you know, want to become dancers. She definitely is, and she's, you know, that's what's so wonderful about all of this is, you know, it's not a stereotype of, you know, you all have to be reed thin or have small bones or not be muscular or be muscular or have gorgeous feet or not gorgeous feet. You know, everybody has something to offer. And that's probably what makes it interesting. And I would hope that, you know, sometimes it's hard because the kids audition for schools and sometimes they're not taken into the school and they're good dancers and maybe they don't have the body type which they are looking for but I think it's they lose something in that because it, these are students and if they're talented people transcend those those you know notions of what uh, yeah happening. notions of what what a dancer should be and you know, if they have the tenacity, they will, they will find their place. Mm -hmm. They really will, uh, if it's meant to be. But sometimes it's hard. And and I'm mean, Helgi Thompson, who was the direct. He is the director of San Francisco Ballet. He once said to me, he said, if if a dancer is of average height, they can have average talent. But if they are very small or very tall, they have to have extraordinary talent. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a director's point of view. So when I talk to young dancers, I you know, I always say, look, if you the reason to dance is because you love to dance and you you need to you need to stick with it. Uh, and good things will happen. Sometimes people quit too early, you know. And and I, I, if there's a will, there's a way. I I've seen people who you don't think they're ever going to do something, and because they want it so badly, they make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's what dancing teaches you. <laughs> This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking with the Artistic Director for Eastern Connecticut Ballet, Gloria Govern. 
Her skill and height as a dancer caught the attention of legendary choreographer George Balanchine, and he created many roles for her during her career as a soloist for the New York City Ballet from 1959 to 1974. Coming up, we'll hear about her decision to retire and how she instructs young dancers today. That's after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're bringing you a conversation I had recently with Gloria Govern, a former soloist with the New York City Ballet. She danced under the direction of contemporary choreographer George Balanchine. Her skill and height set her apart from other dancers and influenced Balanchine to create many roles for her during her 15 years with the company. You had a long career. Um, tell mm-hmm. us about the decision of when you decided it was time to retire. Well... With all those years with Balanchine, Balanchine liked young dancers. So once you got past a certain age, he starts looking at younger dancers. Plus, I was I was a dancer who um, was known for jumping, and that affected my knees. And you get to the point where those injuries don't heal as fast as you want them to. And you can start to feel it. And so I thought, this is the time. I was very fortunate because Balanchine started me teaching when I was 20 years old. I was, whenever we had a layoff with the company, I was at the School of American Ballet teaching. And I never, I never realized it. I think he... You know, he chose me. There were several people that he chose to teach at the school, and he was actually paving the way for my future later on. So I felt very comfortable um, after all those years in New York City Ballet because I had all this experience teaching, and I taught every level from the young children to company class. So when I retired, I decided I was going to open my own school. And you did that in Pennsylvania? Yes, I did, in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Now, nobody ever <laughs> said I was a very savvy businesswoman. I saw this great little town, and I thought, oh, this I would really like to live here. This is really sweet. So I found a place that had – it was an old ice cream factory, and I fixed it up, and I – open my doors. And I realized in New Hope, Pennsylvania, there were not very many children. <laughs> and all, a lot of the students that I first had were adults, which in a way was interesting because 
it was like I made ready-made friends. All of a sudden, I, I met everybody in the community because they all came to take ballet with me. And then I, I moved my school to Lambertville, which is right across the Delaware River, and that's when I started getting more children. From there, I had my daughter, and I decided I had started a little company, which was a lot of work. Uh, it was very satisfying, but it was really hard to get people to, I used to equate it with climbing the mountain, and instead of having people climb the mountain with me, I was climbing the mountain with them on my shoulders, and it was really difficult. So I was about an hour away from Philadelphia, and the director of Pennsylvania Ballet was a colleague of mine, and I called, and I said, do you have anything? And he said, can you come in tomorrow and teach, which I did, and they hired me, and so I closed my school and I started teaching in Philadelphia. And I did that for many, many years. And then I got this opportunity to go to San Francisco, which was a great opportunity. I was what were the, you doing there? I was the associate director of the school. And I even asked when they, when they offered the job, I said, how much administrative work would I have to do? Because I really like being in the studio. I'm not an office person. Oh, we have an administrator. You know, you, can, you just have to make up schedules and stuff. I said, I can do that. And so there I was in San Francisco for eight years. It was wonderful. I had beautiful students. I made lots of friends. And then my daughter, my daughter lives in Charlestown and uh, mass, and uh, she's a music teacher. And I have a very small family. I have a brother that lives in Florida, and we never see each other. And I wanted to be closer to my daughter. Mm. And so the closest I got was Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent two years there, and then I got a call from Lise, uh, Lise Reardon from Eastern Connecticut Ballet, and she and I just hit it off on the phone. We, I didn't know her at all, and I think we were on the phone for two hours talking ballet. And she asked me to come and teach, and I did, and I've been here ever since. It, you're now the artist, artistic director of Eastern Connecticut yep. Ballet. Yes, you I mentioned am. your some of your students earlier. Um, as an instructor, you know what are some of the the main values and lessons that you look to teach them? Oh, I think I'm teaching them more more life lessons than ballet most of the time in in class, and it's all about how to learn, how to focus, um, to understand in ballet. The difference between right and wrong is something like a quarter of an inch. And so you have to strive to do it perfectly, even if you know you can't, because there is no such thing as perfection, but you have to at least try to do that and to remember the corrections in order to improve. And that just being there doesn't make you better. It just makes you older. <laughs> you have to apply yourself. And that um, the reward is, it's, it's the self-reward. You don't compete with anyone else in the class. You compete with yourself. So 
did you do better in this step than you did the day before? Uh, and on and on, it's like climbing a little mountain. Do you find that you have to help your students um, kind of push away self-doubt if they don't feel like they fit the mold of what a professional dancer looks like? Absolutely. Um, and and I all the time, uh, you know, I tell them sometimes, because I work with teenagers, and sometimes they get in their own way, and they need to check it at the door and to remember why they are doing this and how much they love it. And, and I can relate to that because I remember leaving the ballet, you know, tossing my point shoes, cutting my hair off, freedom. I, you know, I, this is when I first left and I went to New Hope and opened my school. And I remember when I turned 50, I decided I was going to try to take an entire class on point. I was going to get myself back into shape, and I was going to be able to do that. And I remember my first day at the bar. I used to take class with Pennsylvania Ballet Company. And I stood at the bar, and the pianist played the introduction. And the spirit came over me and I thought to myself, this is what's been missing from my life for all of those years. I had this this sense of the music just running through me and I remember lifting my leg and it was shaking like crazy because I hadn't danced in 20 years. And um, I did achieve what I wanted to achieve. And that's what I want my, my students to remember, that they're dancing for this feeling that it gives them, and not whether they're having a bad day or somebody said something nasty to them or they didn't do well on a test in school. I said, this studio is your sanctuary. This is where you can leave all of that behind you and work. And the work is the, is the most gratifying thing in the world. And sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. But most of the students, I have to say, you basically have to kick them out of the school. It's time to leave. That's, that's how much they love it. And what is your relationship now with the New York City Ballet? Well, it's it's not the, the company itself. There There is the Balanchine Foundation, which... You know, they want to archive a lot of the original people, especially now. I mean, I'm going to be 75. You look great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All those years of dance? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. But this we're like the last generation that Balanchine choreographed for. There may be one little generation after me. It's like... I would consider every 10 years a generation in a ballet dancer's life. And so they want to get this archived. They put it in the library so that people know what it was. Not, not that it has to be done that way because every year, you know, you have a different dancer. They, you know, add and subtract things. Every, but every generation has a different story about how... Um, 
this dance should be done. And what they do at New York City Ballet now is not the dance that I did. It's, it's been changed. And some of it was changed by Balanchine himself. And some of it was changed by the dancers or whoever was rehearsing them and they misremembered or something like that. So it's important to, to archive it. Um, as far as New York City Ballet, for me, it's the dancers. You know, I, I have colleagues that teach at the School of American Ballet, people who I grew up with in the ballet. We're all, we're all getting up there in age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love when, you know, the dancers come and and dance with us in our nutcracker. Um, you know, for the for the or we'll take the kids into New York to see performances and they get to take a class with a New York City ballet dancer. Um, before the performance, it's so inspiring for them, and it it takes me back, mm-hmm. you know, to when I was a kid. And I think it's great because sometimes I think kids can be cynical um, in this day and age. And, and you know, I was much more naive as a kid. I used to I used to uh, stand at the backstage entrance to get autographs. I would send away for pictures from for all the to me they were like movie stars and and my kids are like that when sarah mearns comes to do nutcracker they they decorate her dressing room they know she likes purple so they all wear purple t-shirts when she comes and little things in their hair it's exciting for them Um, when you're instructing your students, mm-hmm. what do you pass along to them from what you learned from Balanchine, Mr. B? The first thing is, number one, he's sitting right on my shoulder every time I teach. And so every what he taught me was how to do the step and why we're doing it that way. And I try to do that with the students. The, the other thing is um, I use a lot of imagery. Um, it's like um, doing a turn like Fouette turns where the leg goes to the front and the side and it whips around and Balanchine would talk about well pretend it's a it, it's a big bowl of soup or and you have to scrape the sides of the bowl there, there, there are all kinds of imagery that you can use which he did all the time Plus, I tell my little stories, you know, or, you know, when he says, uh, you have to try to hit that fifth position every single time, or you don't think you're that turned out, but when you when I ask for more, you can always find a little bit more. And he always used to say, you know, it's like the toothpaste in the tube and you keep thinking to yourself I have to go out and buy more toothpaste and then the next morning because you forgot it you squeeze the tube and lo and behold there's more toothpaste there so you know it's just things like little things like that. Gloria Govern is Artistic Director of Eastern Connecticut Ballet in East Lyme. The school's dancers will perform at the Catherine Hepburn Cultural Arts Center in Old Saybrook Saturday May 6th and Sunday May 7th. 
The program will feature a ballerina swan and original work choreographed by Govern herself. And before we go, did you want to tell us a little bit about Ballerina Swan? This is something, this is an original from you. It is. It's, it's one of the, the pieces that I am the most proud of. Um, it, it's based on Allegra Kent's children's book, Ballerina Swan. Um, we just started rehearsing it again. We haven't done it in four years. And it is so much fun to work on. Um, and it's about a little swan who wants to be a ballet dancer. You just sort of flip the whole thing. <laughs> and um, it, is, it is delightful. When we did it at the, we did it at the Guard Art Center, and I didn't realize it, but all the children that came to see it, they all dressed up in little tutus, and they were sitting in the audience in their costumes, and they, they bought these little um, feather headpieces like swans. Um, I had one little girl, because the, the children in the school watch us rehearse. I always keep my door open. And this little girl was sitting in the audience with her mother, and there's a part after they have the audition for Swan Lake, and all the girls get their parts, and little Sophie the Swan doesn't see her name there, and she's very despondent because she didn't get a part. And one of the little girls from my school turned to her mother, and she said, Don't worry, Mom. Sophie gets a part. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the sweetest thing in the whole world, and we have some of the sweetest children in our school, and this is this is a, a piece I am very, very proud of, very proud. Well, Gloria Govern, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>